0: The Bob Murphy Show, episode 99. There's a tidal wave coming. What
1: you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy.
0: Welcome to another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, folks. My guest today is the economist Don Boudreau. I'm sure many of you know who he is, but for those who don't, let me read... Some snippets here from his official biography. Donald J. Boudreaux is a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. He's also a former economics department chair at GMU. He specializes in globalization and trade, law and economics, and antitrust economics. Many of you may know his blog, Cafe Hayek. He founded it with Russ Roberts, but as Don explains in the interview in a minute here, Russ doesn't really blog there much anymore now. He's more focused on EconTalk, which I'm sure many of you also follow. Don also, in the past, was the president of the Foundation for Economic Education, and he earned his PhD in economics from Auburn University, and he has a law degree from the University of Virginia. And the last thing I'll mention about him is he wrote a very nice foreword to my book, Choice, that was my uh, distillation of the essential insights in human action. So Don was the guy they got to, to write the forward to that, and it was, it was very nice. And so, you know what? This is an all right guy. So without further ado, here is my discussion with Don Boudreau. Well, Don, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show.
1: Happy to be here.
0: I'm going to mention I'm at a, one of my apartments. I, I'm like Bernie Sanders. I have places all over the, the country, uh, Don. And just in case, in case the viewers are curious, I, I realized I was looking at the the shot that is an Axis and allies game that's that's up there on the on the fridge, just in case people are trying to strain it. I don't want them to be distracted, so that's what that is. So I'm glad to have you here, like I always do when I have a uh, you know an icon in the in the libertarian movement as a, as a guest. Can you just tell us your background story? How, how did you get into this wacky world?
1: Uh, so I am in my early sixties. I was in college in the sort of college in 1976, just after I graduated from high school. I'm the oldest of four in a family and no one ever went to college. My dad dropped out of school in sixth grade, worked in a shipyard, but I had a great family. My mom and father wanted me to go to college and, uh, I had no interest in going to college, but I thought, well, okay, I'll go, I'll go for a year I'll satisfy them. Then I'll work in the shipyard as I had done during the summers, uh, and following my father's father's footsteps. I'll make a long story short, I, I went to a place called Nickel State University in South Louisiana, didn't know what economics was, but I got stuck in an, econ- I got assigned to an economics class. Mm-hmm. I happened to have, in the in spring semester of 1977, I happened to have an extremely good teacher, a woman named Michelle Francois, who died just a few years ago, and she was just excellent. She, uh, it was principles of micro, which I was fortunate to take before principles of macro, that was mm-hmm. a stroke of luck. Um, and to have this great teacher, because she, ha- she brought economics to life. Growing up, coming of age in the mid-70s, uh, I was surrounded by these shortages, gasoline shortages, energy shortages, natural gas shortages. And uh, she drew a supply and demand curve, I remember, on the board one day. And she said, look, look what happens when the government imposes a price ceiling. You get a shortage. And I thought it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen, this, mm-hmm. these few lines explaining this unintended, complicated outcome that was a part of my life. It immediately that explanation immediately made more sense to me than did the explanations that I'd heard before I took economics that we were running out of oil mm-hmm. that the that Exxon and Chevron were keeping their tankers out in the Gulf of Mexico in order to drive the price up and uh, so I be- immediately became hooked because she was such a good teacher you know she brought economics to life it wasn't a, it wasn't a puzzle solving class it wasn't an exercise in applied mathematics it was economics about the real world and she she was actually very market oriented and she told me about about uh, this economist named Bastiat. You know, of course, I never heard of. So I, she, she turned me on to Bastiat. It was another professor at the same school, a guy named Bill Field, who's, who's still alive. He's retired now, living in Texas, uh, who was very much into Hayek and the Austrians. And I started pestering my first economics professor so much that she said, you got to go talk to Dr. Field. Mm-hmm. And so I, he and I became very good friends. Uh, he became my mentor, really, as an undergraduate. And he introduced me to the works of Hayek and Milton Friedman and Ludwig von Mises and Jim Buchanan.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so by my – by the end of my – I want to say by, the, by the, the middle of my sophomore year, I just wanted to get a PhD in economics. I just loved it so much. And so that's that's how it started with me.
0: Okay, great. So up until that point, like, would you say your views were libertarian or is that not even how you thought about the world?
1: No, I I, I didn't think about the world. I had no political views I was interested Mm -hmm. in. Uh, I drank beer. uh, Mm -hmm. I had a girlfriend. uh, I was a football, you know, I liked football. I was sort of a typical going nowhere. I wasn't a bad kid. Mm -hmm. uh, I wasn't doing drugs or anything, but I was just a typical, you know, working class American teenager who was just interested in getting a job and making some money and getting married. But libertarianism did kind of speak to me immediately. I mean, my, my, my family's ethos. Although they wouldn't have put it, my parents wouldn't have put it this way. My family's ethos was always be responsible, don't take other people's stuff. I've written about the story. I remember one of my earliest memories was when I was a young child. I I must have been four or five. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I went with my mother to a neighbor's house, Miss Jane. And uh, I remember getting back to our house and I had in my hand a fistful of rubber bands that I had pilfered from Miss Jane's doorknob. And my mother said, where'd you get those rubber bands? And I said, oh, I took them from Miss Jane. Did you ask her for them? No. She says, you stole. And I was shocked that I had stolen something. Mm-hmm. And I remember my mom dragging me back to Miss Jane's, and I had to apologize for stealing. Mother told me she was disappointed in me. And so in my family, there was this ethos of you know, to mind your own business. Don't envy other people. I was never allowed so, to.
0: Don, can I just ask you, yeah, yeah. so Miss Jane, like she just kept rubber bands, like, to you know, you need to use a rubber band uh, and she happened she, to store them around she, her she,
1: doorknob? She had, maybe my memory's embellishing things. You know, I, you know, I, I keep rubber bands at my place and, like they're just, you know, in a junk drawer if right, I need yeah. one. Uh-huh. So she would put them around a doorknob in her kitchen, like in you know, the kitchen yeah. cabinet. Uh-huh. And a five, four year old, five year old, I was fascinated by, by these rubber bands. I just helped myself yeah bands. And, uh, you know, I don't, I don't actually remember what Miss, what Miss Jane said in reaction, but I remember her being a nice lady. So I'm sure Mm -hmm. she went along and said, yes, Donald, you shouldn't have stolen. Uh, but it taught me, it taught me a lesson. And, you know, so, you know, some, you know, five and a half decades later, this lesson still resonates with me. And I think it was always part of me, Mm -hmm. uh, my, my parents, although, although poor by American standards, would never tolerate any excuse-making, would never tolerate any envying, any expressions of envy of, of other people. It's always, you know, work hard to get what you want. And if you work hard, chances are that you'll you'll get it. We were taught not to feel sorry for ourselves, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Th-
0: that's funny how we, we remember things like, like I can remember I was in line at school you know, we were li- like, you had to line up to go to gym class or something. You know, I was a little kid. Yeah. And there was a printout of something on the wall. And it was back when the printers, like they had, um, like the printer paper had the, the holes on the margins. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. You know, like the, yeah, right yeah. To, to roll. I forget what you call that. And, yeah. and it was just, and I just kind of went up and, and tore off, you know, so the, like the teacher had taped the printout on the wall, like explaining something. Yeah. And I just, you know, absent-mindedly as we're sitting there waiting in line, like ripped it up and the teacher yelled at me and I was so outraged like I didn't do anything wrong, you know what I mean? Like I'm sure you were thinking I wasn't trying to steal, I was just like, oh, some rubber band. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> until that moment,
1: I didn't think yeah. of myself as a, fa- a thief, but I, my mom, yeah. my mom informed me different my mom taught me differently. Yeah.
0: And also too, it just it goes to show I think that one of the ways I try to get across, like people say, "Oh, libertarianism is this weird" You know, extreme social view or something. It's eccentric, and it's like, well, no, actually, what you teach your kid at the playground is libertarianism. It's we make all the exceptions. You know, what I mean, like you, the the kids at the playground can't vote, and if six out of ten decide to take the rich kid's bike, that doesn't make it okay. You know, no no parent would say let's have an election, but yet that's what the parents do. You know, in November,
1: yeah, or 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 no parent would be proud of a child who comes back home and expresses uh envy that right. you know a classmate has nicer jeans or drives a nicer car, uh, mm-hmm. my parents would have uh, put me straight if I had, had done such such things. They would not have been proud of me at all. They would have been ashamed, rightly so.
0: Right, and they would, yeah, they could have said, well, if you really want that, you know, you can go get a job or da 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 Which yeah. is what
1: they did, you know, mm-hmm. on, on, on occasions when I said, you know, I'd like this or that. And, well, nothing's stopping you, boy. Go out and, go out and work for you. Yeah. <laughs>
0: OK, so can you tell us a little bit, like, how did you end up at GMU and just, you know, fill in that gap of the story?
1: Bob, I had my, my life is a series of lucky breaks. It really mm-hmm. is. And I don't say that in, all, in, in, in false modesty. Um, so I began my graduate. Bill, Bill Field got me interested in Austrian economics. And this is when NYU's Austrian program was, was probably at its zenith. Mm-hmm. the Israel Kirzner was active. Uh, Jerry O'Driscoll, Mario Rizzo was there. During my time there, Jerry left and Larry White came. This is the early 80s. I was at NYU from 80 to 82. But I was not, despite the fact that I took and did well in math classes as an undergraduate, uh, I didn't have the mathematical chops really Mm. to get through any program, or or I feared that I didn't. And so I took a master's degree at NYU and transferred to Auburn because I had met Roger Garrison. Mm Mm-hmm visiting nyu during my first year there and roger and i hit it off and said you know we have this program at auburn we're just starting this phd program you should come down in retrospect it's kind of a dumb move leaving an established program like nyu to go to, to auburn which is a football school mm-hmm. i mean i wound up being the first econ phd from that school but I, I i new york was too much for me at the time i didn't have any money at all um so i went to auburn it turned out I was very good. I wanted to write my dissertation under Bob Eklund, mm-hmm. And Bob, one of Bob's best friends and co-authors is, is the late uh, Bob Tollison. Mm-hmm. Tollison was in the mid-'80s on the faculty at GMU. And uh, because of Bob's recommendation, I got a, I got a job interview at, at George Mason in 1985. My job talk, I remember it very well. It was on Frank Knight and The Theory of the Firm. And Jim Buchanan was there. Gordon Tollick was there. Bob Tollison was there. It was not a good job talk. I remember walking out of the room thinking, oh, my gosh, I, I blew it. But at least I had the opportunity to interview the plus like George Mason. And then Karen Vaughn, who was department chairman, called me two days later and said, congratulations, we're offering you a job. Oh, great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this was this was 85. And uh, so I'm. I'm, I'm Can I, I ask you, did you know
0: yeah. enough to be like somewhat intimidated by those some of those names you just rattled off or did you not know. know who well, they were? Was,
1: yeah. Yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. when, so when I was at Auburn. I mean, you know, I, when I was an undergraduate, I I'd started reading Hayek and Mises. I started I'd already read Buchanan. I read some of Tullock, and then during my three years at Auburn, eighty-two to eighty-five. By the way, I was lucky at Auburn. Also, uh, Leland Yeager was a visiting professor at Auburn during my mm-hmm. time there. He later joined the faculty permanently, and so I learned macro from Leland Yeager. And so mm-hmm. I, I so I I had a tremendously good education. And so I by the time I'm interviewing at GMU. Yeah, I know who Bob Tollison is. Jim Buchanan's already a hero of mine. Uh, I, you know, I, I know of Karen Vaughn, Don Lavoy. Uh, he probably also helped. He and I overlapped. His last year why he was my first year, and mm-hmm. Don hit it off well. And Jack Hyde was in the faculty. Walter Williams, who I of course knew of, mm-hmm. um, and so I was I was intimidated and very fortunate. And so I, uh, George Selgin and I were hired both as junior faculty. In the fall of 85 at at GMU. And uh so that 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 was my biggest single break. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: So I was gonna ask you when you mentioned NYU, if you had overlapped when Don Lavoie was there. Do you and that's a name that I think a lot of people who are fans of the Austrian school, they they hear his name cited. They know maybe he had something to do with the socialist calculation, but they don't right. know much or maybe hermeneutics. Can you yeah. just speak a little bit about you know, what he, what he was doing. Cause they, like I said, I, I think a lot of people know the name, but they don't really know what he did.
1: Unfortunately, Don died at the tender age of 51 of a mm-hmm. uh, very aggressive cancer back in uh, November of 2001. Don was temperamentally a man of the left. He looked like a guy on the left and you know, he, he dressed, you know, in sort of left, I don't know the title. You know, he, you know, he dressed in a you know, sort of baggy clothes. He had wispy hair. Mm-hmm. Uh, he wasn't well-groomed. His background was computer science. He was, he was from, from New England. And I don't know the full details, but somehow through his, through his studies of how order emerges in computer programming, he, got, he gets interested in, in economics.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and, of course, the Austrians are very much into studying how order emerges spontaneously. Don completed his dissertation at NYU in the spring of 81, writing under Israel Kirzner. Uh, his dissertation it was published in 1985 by Cambridge University Press uh, under the title of Rivalry and Central Planning, which was a, uh, not only a history of the socialist calculation debate involving Mises and Hayek, of course, but he, he brought life to it. He explained the, the underlying logic of what Mises and Hayek were, were doing and, and, and made it accessible, more accessible, perhaps, than it otherwise would be. And also that same year, 1985, Don published another book through the Cato Institute. Called uh, uh, National Economic Planning: What Is Left,
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: which is a deep and brilliant expose of all the fallacies that, under all the fallacies that are at the heart of proposals for national economic planning. You know, which is sort of a uh, you know reduced form version of socialism. We're going to have socialism in you know, in, in part, uh, but Lavoie was incredibly deep and sophisticated thinker. Now, you mentioned hermeneutics. He he did spend. Toward the end of his life, he spent a lot of time looking at continental, reading continental philosophy, and and you know pondering how to interpret texts. I'm not much into that stuff, so I, I haven't read mm-hmm. that much of Don's work on that front. But I, you know, I respect his work as a scholar, mm-hmm. and and the work that I know, and the work that gives him the greatest uh, fame in in, right. in, in the source are these two remarkably good 1985 books of his. They are your your audience, that even though they're 35 years old now, each remains timely and accessible. In fact, in some sense, more timely and accessible than they have been in sure. decades.
0: I don't mean to put you on the yeah. spot, but like, is there anything where you can think of that someone who just reads like the classics, you know, like you know Mises' original thing or Hayek's stuff, w- wouldn't get? But you read Lavoy, and like he he did something that pulled it together, or
1: uh, so, in national economic planning, he pulls together, he explains in a way that I think is un, unmatched the depth of the knowledge problem that confronts government officials who would try to pick industry winners either mm-hmm. through subsidies or or restrictive tariffs. Don was such a nuanced and sophisticated thinker. I don't have a you know a line to throw out to right. summarize it, but it is the single best. That book remains to me the single best refutation of all the pretensions that underlie proposals for national industrial policy that I've ever read
0: I mean even just the title involving rivalry there I mean so that's implicit but is that like one of his themes that that's really what's important is you need to have different yes loci yeah. or loci of, of control and you know
1: yeah that, yeah, that, yeah that, that in, in the rivalry book you know the the, the the dissertation that he later expanded into this book on on the socialist calculation debate it's not just a history of thought on the socialist calculation mm. it is that too. But it's a book that brings out the importance of rivalry and how this rivalry discovers and refines and polishes and then disperses in usable ways the knowledge that's necessary for an economy to not only to sustain itself but to grow.
0: Yeah, I mean just an example of that kind of thing. I don't know who first came up with it, but I remember – I think it might have been Hayek mentioning like the problem with doing cost plus pricing for utility regulation. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah, it costs yeah. this much to generate the electricity and give the – shareholders, you know, X percent profit, is that it, it's not a fact of nature how much does it cost to deliver a kilowatt hour of electricity to somebody. And
1: so. That's exactly right. That, that's mm-hmm. a really good example. And and Don does a marvelously good job of making that clear in the rivalry and central planning book.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, great. L- let me ask you this while we're talking about it. I heard this, what may be an urban legend, so maybe you can confirm or deny. Somebody told me one time that Lavoie used to, when he was at New York... Would go undercover and go into Marx's reading groups and like win their trust over months with his mastery of Marxism. And then at the last meeting, blow it up and walk out. Is that true? So, so
1: I, can't, I can't confirm it for sure because I, I didn't witness mm-hmm. it. I too have, have heard that. Mm-hmm. I can confirm that is perfectly within Don's personality trait. He okay. he was deeply read in, in Karl Marx. Mm hmm. Uh, in fact, I don't think I've ever met anyone who was better read in Marx. And he had a respect for Marx that was genuine. Uh, mm-hmm. like one of the few things that Don was unable to convince me of is that I should respect Marx as much as he did as he. Uh-huh. Did. Um, but he 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 did know Marx very well, and it would be like him to go into one of those meetings. And the way he looked physically, he would have fit right in. Right. <laughs> you could put a Chase shirt on on Don Lavoie and it would it would look not out of place.
0: <laughs> that's that's great. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I like more when a kind like you know Bombabrik and Karl Marx in the close of his system or something where they really get into the theory and stuff you might not, one might not have known. In, in other words, merely than just saying, oh, well, look at how many millions of people died under communism. Case closed. I mean, that's an important thing to bring up. But yeah. in terms of you know grappling with Marxism, like to say, well, what's its you know the mechanism for which you know interest is generated and that kind of stuff. That's yeah.
1: No that's he, stuff. he he treated Marx as a serious economic scholar.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, let me um, shift gears a little bit to then ask you. Well, another big thing, we mentioned GMU. Um, so you are one of the co-bloggers at, at Cafe Hayek. Do you want to tell us the background story of how that happened?
1: So I'm the only blogger at Cafe Hayek. Now, Cafe Hayek was started by Russ Roberts and myself. when mm-hmm. Russ, was, Russ was my colleague from 2003 when we hired him until he left in 2012 to take a full-time position at the Hoover Institute. Uh, Russ gradually just moved away from from blogging. He started Econ Talk, uh, which is you know a terrific, okay. wonderful uh, podcast series. And he devotes all of his time to that and some other projects. So Russ stopped blogging. It wasn't a formal decision. He just sort of drifted away from it. And he hasn't blogged at Cafe Hayek in in years. And so I now regard it, as I think Russ does, as you know, my blog. Uh Russ came to me.
0: But but you guys formed it simultaneously like you were both there from the inception. We were both from
1: the start. Okay. It was it was Don Boudreaux and Russ Roberts's Blog. In fact, the first couple of blog posts on it were written by, by Russ Roberts. And I remember, Bob, so the reason that got started, and as you know, I, I write these letters to the editor, mm-hmm. which, which I've always done. I mean, I was writing letters to the editor when literally I was putting them in envelopes and sticking them in the mailbox and mailing them to the places. It's a way for me to vent my spleen, and, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of my my speed, little short ditties. So Russ knew I did these letters to the editor. I would share them with him. and I remember him coming to my office one day. I had just learned of blogging because Tyler Cowan and Alex Tabarrok not long before had started Marginal Revolution, which is the first blog I was aware of. Mm-hmm. I still wasn't quite sure what blogging was about or what it was. And I remember Russ said, you and I ought to start a blog. And I remember not wanting to. I said, well, what's the point of a blog? I write these letters to the editor. I now email them. There's this magic thing called email. I send them out. This email us. No, no. So it was Russ's determination that we start a blog. And uh, I probably was, I didn't, play as active a role as I should have played with Russ in starting it. And you know, Russ threw out some names. And, you know, I was, okay, well, yeah, Cafe High, that sounds better. I don't remember what the other names were. But, okay, we'll do that. One. And Russ gets start it started. And I remember, he had to come into my office a few weeks after it started. He said, Don, you got a blog. I said, <laughs> Russ, to do it. And so he actually sat down at my with me at my chair. He said, look, here's how you do it. And he, he walked me through the steps of how to open up this thing. And mm. and and I had some little post, some little letter I was writing, working on, and that became my first blog post, and I remember immediately because you know, it's, it's like instant gratification. The minute, the minute you you hit you hit, you know post, it, it's there, it's published, it's like a publication. Right. And I remember, oh, this is pretty good. And so I got hooked right away. And so when people tell me, you probably feel the same way. When people tell me, ah, oh, you know, I really admire all the work you put into your blog. I think, I, I, say, I say thank you. But my, my my secret reaction is it's not work at all. It's it's <laughs> it's just it's it's enjoyment and pleasure. I mean, every now and then. I feel the obligation to put something up that I really don't feel like putting up. But mm-hmm. most, of it's just a, lo- a labor of love.
0: Okay, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you remember much about the title, but yeah, because I was wondering, like, did you guys first say, okay, what are we going to write about? And then what's the title for that? Or, you know, I mean, because it's not like every post has to do with Hayek or no, with, ca- with cafes for that matter. So.
1: Relatively few <laughs> relatively few mm-hmm. do. So it was never intended to be a, a, a blog about Hayek. Right. Um, I remember early on, when Russ convinced me, okay, let's do a blog. I remember telling Tyler Cowan, I remember saying, you know, I, I think we're going to do this blog and I'm going to devote it to trade policy. That's what I'm most interested. Mm-hmm. In. And Tyler said, no, 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 no. He says, uh, no blog devoted to a specific policy has any hope of, of, of surviving. And he was probably right about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, although Tyler later went on to start a blog on devoted to avian flu issues, which did not survive. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know that it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't long, long lasting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, um, but, but, you know, if you recap, I like, you know, the probably 60% or at least 50% of my blog posts have something to do with some trade, some trade. Right. Policy.
0: Okay. Yeah. yeah. It, it is a, a paradox of, um, you know, I don't know if marketing is the right word, but like you, there's some Twitter accounts that I follow and you're right. And with some, if it's like an established public intellectual, like I say, yeah, whatever they post on is great. But yeah. with other things, like if it's topic oriented, it's almost like the narrow, like if it's just a a twitter account devoted to cute pictures that's too general whereas if it's like cute pictures of kittens going down a slide yeah you know and, they, and so everyone just knows oh if i have a picture like that i send it to that account you know what i mean so it's yeah, yeah. it is you know to distinguish yourself because now yeah everybody's got a blog and so you got to have something that's, that's somewhat specific
1: yeah i mean you know russ knew i greatly admired hayek right. and uh and Russ always liked Hayek, but when he came, the blog was started in '04. Russ arrived here in in the fall of '03, mm-hmm. and he immediately started reading more of Hayek, and he became, you know, more and more intrigued with and enamored with Hayek's work. So, by the time we started the blog in April of '04, Russ was was also an admirer of, of Hayek, probably on par with with myself.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, you brought up something I was going to ask you that. Yeah, I think when I'm trying to like tell people like, oh yeah, I'm going to have Don Boudreau on. And they're like, you know, which, and I'll be the guy that writes all the op-eds like, oh yeah, that guy. So (laughs) how did that become, you know, your, your stock and trade as it were?
1: Oh, so letters to the editor, more my, my stock and trade. Um, Oh, did I say op-ed? Yeah. 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 I meant to say
0: letters to the editor. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, I write a few op-eds, but Mm. you know, um, no, I just
0: misspoke. I meant to say letters
1: to the editor. Um, Yeah. So early on, you know that I realized they were they were easy to get published, and you know, it's 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 a rush to see your name in print. Right. I remember during, you know, during my first stint at George Mason back in the mid eight mid and late eighties, I would send letters to the Wall Street Journal, and you know, then it took a couple of weeks, and you know, open the Wall Street Journal, and, oh, there's your name, it's in print, right? And it's kind of a rush, mm-hmm. and, and, yeah. and they're not hard to write, uh, and so I would start writing these letters, and then I would send them to people. When I became president of FEE, uh in 1997, I had fundraising duties. And this is just as emails really getting going. And I, you know, it's kind of icky raising money. So I, I didn't want my donors to hear from me only when they thought I was there to, to beg them for money. So as a fee, I'd write these letters to the editor and I'd and I send them out by email and I'd send them to a lot of my donors or, or would be mm. donors. And so they would hear from me mostly, not when I'm asking them for money, but when I'm, you know, they, they would see me. You know, joining the fight. You know, you know, right. making the case for economic liberty, making the case for limited government, and then people would ask, "Oh, can you put me on that on on your email list?" And I, thought, oh, I was always flattered. Of course, I'll put you on my mm-hmm. my list. And then it, it came a point. I'm not sure exactly when, where I felt almost obliged every day to wake up and write a letter to the editor, <laughs> and, <laughs> and and send it. And so, Cafe Hayek really emerged from that because Russ saw in this letter writing thing of mine, he used would make good blog posts. Yeah. So I still write letters to the editor, although I will confess publicly here, most of my letters now I don't even send to the publication. I just – they're more valuable to me to put up immediately on on the blog. Mm-hmm. Some of them I do. I, for example, I have one in today's Wall Street Journal, coincidentally enough. Uh, but, but I'm glad you found it. Cause I was wondering, but I didn't want to put you on the spot because
0: you know, he was asking a magician to re- reveal his secret. So I didn't, I wasn't going to ask you, but I was curious.
1: But you know, if, 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 if I have a sense that a letter, if I write a letter to the New York times and, and I can have, I have a pretty good sense now, whether it has any prospect of publication at all, if it does, I won't post it on the blog and I'll send it to the times instead, because if it's posted on the blog, the times don't publish it. Okay. But if it's a letter that, I'm pretty sure has a slim to no chance that the Times will publish it. It'll be addressed to the Times, but I'll put it up immediately on my on my blog. Yeah, so I, I say, yeah, I would say maybe a third of the letters that I write actually get sent,
0: mm-hmm.
1: maybe even less. M- the majority are posted immediately and never sent.
0: Okay. Yeah, I think Russ was right because it is a good hook. Like it, it's, um, you know, it's not a huge investment of time for the reader. And then if it's an issue you care about, like what the one cares about. Yeah. You might, you know, because you'll say, oh, in regards to so-and-so's op-ed from January 22nd, you know, three fallacies. And so if the person really cares, they can go click and see what did the, you know what I mean? So it is a good thing where you can kind of very quickly decide how deeply do I want to wade into this dispute. And it is more fun to like see a debate. Like, I think that's why debates are so popular in general that people like to see two different viewpoints going head to head.
1: Right, right, yeah.
0: So a lot of what you... Right on, as you mentioned, is, is the topic of free trade. So maybe we could spend a bit on that. Um, mm-hmm. So I'll I'll let you go ahead. I mean, is are you doing, why do you focus so much on trade policy? Is it because you think that's like the most essential thing or just – I'll go ahead and just
1: – Well, so uh, a couple of reasons. I mean trade became my specialty almost by accident. I took a class in international trade at, at NYU from Fritz Machlup just because I wanted to take a class from Machlup. Oh, okay. And I did very well. Uh, in it. I, I liked it, but I but could have taught anything and I' have taken a class from mock. From mm. So j- just a little bit of background. so i I my first job was at George Mason. Uh, I was interested in antitrust back then, and so I went to law school in order to you know bone up on the lo- legal aspects of antitrust. And uh, by the time I got out of law school, I'd lost interest in antitrust. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and fortunately, antitrust was was been pretty much dead, not dead, but somnolent, uh, which was a good thing. And so I, my, I got a job out of law school at Clemson, and I'm, I'm the low person on the totem pole. Clemson had an MBA program, and uh, all the students, based in Europe, all the students that come to Clemson in the summer, and it was a capstone course in international economics, a trade course. Mm-hmm. And so I get to Clemson, they point to me and say, well, you, you're teaching you're teaching this class, because no one else in Clemson wanted to teach international trade. So I had to teach the class. And uh, I didn't expect to enjoy teaching the class, because I really didn't do any trade stuff, uh, but I loved teaching the class. Mm-hmm. It, I, so that's how I became interested in in trade. But another part of the story is economic ignorance just drives me bananas, as I'm sure it does YouTube. It's just to see blatant economic ignorance. And there's no field in economics that gives rise or that is the subject of more economic misunderstanding than than trade. You know, protectionism is just is rampant and mercantilist fallacies continue. And so I encounter these all the time. And I, I just like debunking. It's like playing whack a mole, of course. Knock this right. one down, it pops up. But part of the reason, Bob, is is, you know, I don't find it that trade's not that difficult. Uh, and and so it I don't have to tap into, you know, the deeper recesses of, of whatever deep theoretical knowledge I have in order to make interesting points about why this particular argument for tariffs or that particular argument for export subsidies uh, is is fallacious. And, you just, mm-hmm. and it is and I do find it to be a challenge it's one I enjoy trying to figure out new ways to make the argument. You know, new analogies, new reductios. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes I think it works better than others. But but trade trades just. I write on it so much because I think it's a it's an area in which the fallacies, particularly you know, in the last few years, particularly the fallacies run so so hot and heavy.
0: Yeah. Um. I don't. You had some. Unfortunately, I can't remember off the top of my head. But I really liked um, something. About the idea of if we're running a trade deficit, that means we're like we're living above our means. Yeah, and yeah, I, the, and you've, I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot. Like it's it's fine if you just
1: yeah, yeah. Well, so, pun, but
0: I mean, can you think? I, I really wish it could. It was at my fingertips a minute ago. That's why I was bringing it up. But now I can't remember. But there was some some argument you used or some analogy that really like showed why that is not necessarily yeah, I, I, I the right the, way to the, think about
1: the, it. The particular I've, I've written many, and I don't remember mm-hmm. the particular one you have in mind, but. You know, it's – I mean, on this issue, even competent economists, uh, the late Martin Feldstein, I think, was – although very good, he was very bad on this issue. He he would say, oh, well, the trade deficit means – whenever we're on a trade deficit, it means we're going into debt to foreigners. Uh, And it doesn't mean that at all. It can mean that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But a simple example would be if uh, you're in Canada and and, and I'm in the U.S. and uh, I buy something from you with U.S. dollars and you take those dollars and you then – buy stock on the new york stock exchange well that increases the u.s trade deficit because you've invested in america you didn't use your dollars to buy things from america but you own this stock well there's no debt no one owes you anything uh you just you Mm -hmm. own own an asset and then what people will say is oh well assets have been transferred from americans to foreigners and that's true and if you only look at that part of the equation it looks like americans are made asset poorer but the amount of capital in the world isn't fixed. right? And so if you take the the dollars uh, or if, if the American who sells you the stock takes the dollars and, you know, starts a new company with those dollars and the American's capital stock can go up if it's a successful company. Um, and so there, there are a lot of confusions around, around the, I, I, I wrote just today. Mm. I don't, any any concept in all of economics is responsible for as much, certainly not more mischief and policy misunderstanding than the trade deficit.
0: Yeah, I think you're flirting with the thing that I, that you you know got me to think through. It was something like you had an example where something like if Japanese investors wanted to open a car factory in the United States technically, you know, those operations would boost the trade deficit for that period. Yeah. Which you can think of, too, like if they literally just sent over concrete and glass and steel and stuff and construct a building on U.S. soil, like aliens looking at it would say, oh, there's more goods flowing into the United States than are flowing the other way. And so therefore that that's an import. There's no corresponding. That's a trade deficit or that contributes to the trade deficit. And yet that would, you know, provide jobs for U.S. workers and blah, blah, you know, so and. Yeah. yeah there is a sense in which they would be acquiring the assets now in the united states cuz even if they were just renting the you know the real estate you know what i mean so you you don't even have to say they bought the land in which case you could say the american so there it'd be like yeah they're gaining shares of us based assets yeah to, and that explains like the capital account surplus for the you know the current account deficit but it's you're right it's not like americans have fewer assets now like the so anyway examples yeah. like that really showed how some of the accounting leads to really counterintuitive things that the trade deficit can be misleading about
1: yeah and you know, at, at any more base level the language is so confusing the language is is understandably confusing do trade deficit mm-hmm. you know, deficit sounds bad people actually equate it with the budget deficit as you know i mean there is this connection between a trade deficit and a, mm-hmm. and a budget deficit to the extent that foreigners buy u.s treasuries uh, and, and obviously, the more Uncle Sam borrows, the greater the number of U.S. treasuries available to foreign, for foreigners to buy. So there is this connection, but people mistake the term deficit in the term trade deficit as meaning the same thing that deficit uh, means in the phrase government budget deficit. In the two, right. Government budget deficit does mean the government is going further into debt, uh, right. putting aside money creation. But a trade deficit does not mean that Americans are, are going further into debt, although it, it could mean that.
0: Yeah, and I'm glad, you know, you're mentioning that here. So let me just, for the sake of completeness. So normally what happens for the listeners who don't know is I read your stuff and I only blog about it when I disagree with you. So it sort of and it and might come up it. and I always preface yeah, it yeah, saying. Yeah, I have yeah. had some
1: exchanges in the past, yeah. yeah.
0: So of course I always preface it by saying, the only reason I mentioned it is because I agree with 99.9. So in yours is, is actually, it's more like, I just think it might mislead someone. It's not that you say something that I think is actually wrong. But but yeah, so let me just mention and have you respond. The, yeah, my concern with some of the you know standard libertarianist rhetoric, people will say something along the lines of, uh, not only is a trade deficit not bad, but actually we're getting more stuff for our exports, so isn't that a good thing? And so there the issue is okay. So does that mean a trade surplus then is bad, and that the interventionist should go be taught? And and so that's there's there's that kind of thing where. You're, they make it. They almost flip it like it's necessarily a sign of prosperity. When, like you're saying, it's it could be.
1: It could be a sign of economic decline. I you mean, know, you know, a simple example would be if if all of us Americans decide, you know, we want to have a gigantic party, so we liquidate all of our assets, sell them to foreigners. Uh, you know, we throw a you know a big party, wake up tomorrow, you know, hungover and and, and destitute. yeah, right. uh, you know, you we'll know, have done it, but it, it wouldn't be foreigners' fault. You know, we, right. we chose to do it. And so it could be it could be evidence of a bad economic decision making on our part, but it could also be evidence of good economic decision making. You know, we, right, we right. provide a policy environment in which foreign investors find us to be relatively attractive to other places. So they want to they want to invest money in, and build factories here. They want to increase the sizes of their operations here. Uh, and all of that would be sign of, of economic prudence and excellence here rather than of dissipation.
0: Right. And even there, what's funny is, like, I, I realize we're, like, doing third and fourth level analysis here, but why not? Um, yeah. It wouldn't be the kid, Like, so even, yes, even though we can imagine, yes, there are scenarios where a high trade deficit would be the result of choices that are not sustainable, let's say, and that, you know, the normal person would look at and say that's irresponsible or profligate. Even there though, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a, it's a bad thing. Like, you know, somebody who's 85 years old might be drawing down his retirement account. That's right. that's and that right. doesn't, you know, taking vacations, you know, taking his grandkids on cruises and stuff. And he might be consuming more each year than his portfolio is generating an income on capital gains and dividends and whatever. And that that's not necessarily a bad thing. And yeah. then even if it were, even if you did identify cases, you know, like a teenager running up the credit card bills. And you know, that's my favorite go-to example is to say, a teenager's running just a capital account surplus when he's running up the credit card bill and spending more than his job pays, we wouldn't say he's being responsible. Showing what a great investment opportunity he is, you might say, "No, son, you got to stop doing that." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. even so, the local mayor putting a tariff in place on the teenager isn't helping the teenager any by doing that. You know, so so even in cases where yeah, we can agree with common sense, you know, normal man on the street logic. Yep, that's irresponsible. They're they're squandering their wealth it's not clear how levying taxes on some of their transactions fixes the problem.
1: Yeah, I mean, if, if, I mean to, to, to go to the example I gave earlier, the extreme example, if, if we all, if our time preference became, you know, something like immediate mm-hmm. and we just wanted to, you know, it, you know, have maximum pleasure today and so we're going to liquidate all of our assets to do that, it's hard to imagine how a tariff will somehow make us prudent. I mean, if we're intent on being imprudent and irresponsible, it's highly unlikely that a tariff is going to change that. We'll find some way to be <laughs> imprudent and 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 irresponsible if that's what we're about mm-hmm.
0: so you know moving aside from the the strict economics of it can you speak a little bit what's your sense because what's interesting to me is how much and obviously it's you know I think Donald Trump is the two-word answer but is is there more involved like it it used to be that it was the you know I don't want to necessarily see Democrats but the people who generally weren't in favor of markets, that were skeptical of foreign trade and outsourcing, like those were typical, sort of leftist anti-market complaints. Oh, the poor worker compared to the vagaries yeah. of the, you know, soulless yeah. corporation. And yeah. and now it seems that it's flipped, where it's more the populist right that doesn't yeah. trust free trade. And you know, my joke is, I wish Trump would start bashing the Fed so that. Democrats, <laughs> you know, would be anti. Or sorry, I I messed yeah, up my joke. Mean, yeah, I wish yeah, Trump would yeah. would embrace the Fed so that you know Nancy Pelosi all of a sudden would realize the virtues yeah. of free banking. But in any event, um, so can you speak speak to that a little bit because yeah. it does seem like it's it's changed significantly.
1: Right. With, with with this one preface, I mean, if you listen to Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders on trade, they're just as bad as Trump in some cases. Okay. Mm-hmm. Some cases, even worse. Uh, but but you're right. I mean, Trump has completely moved away from the line. That was the standard Republican Party American conservative line on trade from about the mid '70s until time Trump came along. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously in practice, Reagan and 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 the Bushes were not as good on trade as as their talking points. But you know, they they but at per- least
0: they yeah they were deviating from their talking points. That's right. the issue. Yeah,
1: yeah. Trump Trump and I believe I believe the man is sincere in this regard. Trump, I believe, genuinely thinks that. Mercantilist, he believes that, merc- that that imports are bad because they cause money to flow out of America, and exports are good because they cause money to flow in, which is you know typical mercantilist uh, way of looking at the world. And so, why one thesis? I don't I don't know the answer fully. One part of the answer may be that in a lot of ways, a narrative that was told on the left has come back for a long time has come back to bite them. You know, since about the late 1990s, mid 1990s even this claim had been, has been common that ordinary Americans living standards reached a peak in the mid 1970s and have leveled off ever since. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, all the, all economic gains have gone only to the top 1%. You know, so the, 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 the rich are getting richer. Uh, the poor and middle class are at best treading water. And this was taken, it's still believed by a lot of people that uh, to be, well, it, 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 of course it's true. Look, oh, middle Americans haven't gotten a raise since 1973 or 1975. Uh, I don't know this for sure, but I think it's not implausible that you know at some point you know ordinary Americans pay attention. All right, well that's true. We haven't gotten a raise. Here comes Donald Trump saying, "Well, you haven't gotten a raise mm-hmm. in 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 all all this time." And 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 people who aren't you know sensibly, who aren't enamored of of the welfare state and you know standard fair progressive redistribution they might warm up to Trumpian claims that, yeah, it's due to trade with low-wage countries. We burn all these trade deficits. I mean it's no coincidence that the US trade last time the US ran a trade deficit a trade surplus was 1975, right about the time our living standards supposedly reached the plateau. So that's that that's one reason. Another part of the explanation is, you know, I mean, you know the Americans commitment to free trade and understanding of free trade has never been very deep. They don't understand it like economists understand it. They're not committed mm-hmm. to it in the way that libertarians are committed to it. And so, if someone comes along with a message and 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 a personality that they like, uh, they just sign on for the whole package. Yeah. And so Trump comes along and he's he is you know refreshingly anti-PC, and so people sign on for that 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 whole package. It's unfortunate, but they do.
0: Mm-hmm. Let me ask you because you brought up the. Uh... You know, those statistics about the early 70s. So, what a paper, I don't know if it's actually been published yet. It was like I wrote it to be part of this volume where I took those claims about middle, you know, the median wages or like those alleged uh, disparity between productivity growth versus average pay. I'm sure you've seen those things like that economic policy institute puts out all these things and so and i know there's lots of ways that free market types have gone through and looked and said well wait a minute that doesn't include you know benefits and stuff like that and you know oh okay and that's all fine yeah but what i did is i took it at face value and i said okay a lot of people try to use those charts to somehow show that ronald reagan's bad i was like no their own numbers show the turnaround happened in the early 70s Yeah, yeah you know so that wasn't reagan tax cuts Gee, what was it that changed, that fundamentally altered the nature of the American economy in the early seventies? And of course, I said maybe going off gold had something to do with it. So and I'm wondering too with the you know trade barrier. I know some economists have argued that there's something about you know going off the gold standard fully at that, that moment. You know, the Richard Nixon did that. That has something to do with. Um, yeah, you know, I mean, why is it that amid the trade deficit? Do do you buy into that at all, or do you think it's not just market think, forces think, and think, globalization? I,
1: one thing I always say, I mean, it, it, well, well, you know, this is a, this is an obvious point. You know, the the you know, we live in a highly complex complex world, and so all kinds right. of things are changing. And you know, the the narrative that I'm referring to is a very simple line of causality, right? So deregulation begins in around '77, the move for dere- and tax cut, so you get airline deregulation, Proposition 13 in California. So this is, you know, the Reagan era begins a few years before Reagan actually begins on Carter's watch. Well, that's kind of close to the time when the incomes start to stagnate. So it must be the stagnation must be caused by the tax cutting and the, and the deregulation. Now, I think that's the main, the, the main argument. But if, if you look at trends in trade, for example, you don't find at that time any significant change in the rate of import growth, any significant change in the rate of export growth, there is a very complex story to be told about why the trade deficit started in earnest in 1976, mm-hmm. uh, and that does have something to do with the change in the monetary regime, tracing back to Nixon getting us off the gold standard and you're moving to completely flexible exchange rates. But a different version of what you say, maybe, or maybe it's maybe, maybe it, 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 you something you said remind us. I, I, whenever I tell the story, I often say, "Look, uh, this story about." When I say that middle, because I, I believe in middle Americans have, in fact, greatly improved in their living standards. Um, I, I'm unfortunate enough to be old enough to remember middle class living standards in, in America in the mid-1970s. I was in my teens. And uh, uh, if I were a person of the left, I, I wouldn't deny the story. I'd say, yeah, look, it's great. Yeah, look, you know, we we have, you know, we've had Americans with Disabilities Act, uh, yeah, there's been some deregulation, but this you know government's still around. We've had we've had uh, other government uh, other government programs. It, it shows the durability of Social Security and of mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know the minimum wage, which we haven't gotten rid of. So all this shows the, the you know the, the goodness of the state rather than testifying to the the badness of of markets.
0: Okay, that's interesting. So. I'm not getting you right. You you went to Texas Tech and gave a, a talk there, right? Within, yes, yeah. I think I saw you. Yeah, I was yeah. there. Yeah. Yeah, and um, I don't know. Yeah, you had some great stuff. Were, were you like using a Sears catalog or something? Yes, yes. Can That's, you can you tell the listeners a little, just, you know, I don't yeah. know if you remember the numbers, but I, what, were I, I, you do, what were you doing with the Sears catalog? What does that have to do with this claim about I get middle the income? Idea.
1: I, I got the idea from mm-hmm. um, Mike Cox and, and Richard Alm, who wrote a wonderful book published in 1999 called Myths of Rich and Poor. And one of the chapters in that book is to say, look, yes, adjusting for inflation is a problem. Uh, so let's 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 try to do away with the need to adjust for inflation, right? What's a good way? Well, let's look at the let's look at the nominal prices of things at some time in the past. Let's look at the nominal wage that ordinary workers earned uh, at that same time in the past, and then figure out how many hours a typical worker had to work in order to earn enough income to buy any of these, you know, normal goods, right? Right. Ordinary common goods, and so the the the, the first and very well maybe the only thing, actually, I've ever bought on eBay was a 1975 Sears catalog.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I remember going to eBay in 2007, 2008, and uh, found this catalog, and I bid on it. It was 99 cents. And uh, uh, shockingly, no one else was bidding on it. I bought it for 99 <laughs> cents. And uh, I, I paid $20 to have it shipped to me overnight. Not that I needed it overnight. It wasn't in a hurry for it. But I wanted to be able to honestly say, because I knew I was going to give a talk with it, uh, that I had to ship to me overnight. Because I wanted to compare life today— with life in the mid seventies, uh, 1975. It was a fall winter 75 catalogs. So that's when I'm starting my senior year of high school. And uh, so it had, you know, and Sears, as you know, was the great retailer to middle America, right? Uh, and so you can go through the Sears catalog and clothing and kitchen appliances, tools, you know, exercise equipment and you know, office supplies, automobile supplies, and you can find, look at the prices in there. And then I happen to remember that in so because I've given this talk, in 1975, the, the ordinary, as this Bureau of Labor Statistics calls it, uh, a non-supervisory production worker earned $4.73 an hour in in 1973 dollars. And so you take that $4.73, and you divide it into the price of a good in that Sears catalog, uh, uh, say a 10-cup coffee maker, drip coffee maker. Uh, I remember the stat. So the typical worker in nineteen seventy five had to work nearly eight hours to earn enough income to buy an you know a ten cup drip coffee maker. And then you compare that same worker today, or his or her equivalent today, the income they earn today, to the price of an equivalent good today, that same a kind of coffee maker. Mm-hmm. And today the typical worker has to work about a half an hour to earn enough income. To buy, to buy or 40 minutes to earn enough income to buy that coffee maker. And so if you do this for enough goods, you can see that, wow, at least you know, for these goods that most people understand and, and, and want to possess, uh, the amount of time that we have to spend working to acquire the income sufficient to buy the goods has fallen dramatically. Right. It doesn't mean that there aren't any goods in which, the, the op- in fact, there are some goods in which the opposite has happened. But if you're just looking at you know an ordinary bundle of goods, The evidence is pretty overwhelming that we've become a lot richer in terms of the amount of time we have to expend to acquire the income through working to get those goods.
0: Yeah. And then also, too, like when you start throwing in the quality adjustments, I mean, in other words, like a TV in 1975 is not even the same thing as a TV today.
1: Yeah. And so that's one of the benefits of that PowerPoint presentation that, 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 Mm -hmm. that I did at Texas Tech a number of years ago. I actually have pictures that I took with my telephone, by the way, on this presented through this thing called PowerPoint, have pictures from the catalog. And anyone today can look at, you know, a TV from 1975, uh, a, t- a typewriter, what's a typewriter, students ask, from 1975, <laughs> uh, a microwave oven, and see that the quality today is, is, you know, different and, and, and better. And, and, and that's true for a lot of the goods. And so, I mean, this is, as you know, this is one of the reasons why some people argue that the consumer price index overestimates the rate of inflation because it fails to take adequate account of quality improvements. Right, right. Boston Commissioner,
0: let me ask you um, related to this. So uh, there's a somewhat sophisticated response from like the populist right types, like a Tucker Carlson or somebody. That it, again, or it it could exist, and I've seen you know some people, um, on my listeners, my supporting listeners group on Facebook, they brought this up saying, you know, they're getting pushback along the lines of, oh, okay, yeah, we're we're not challenging that reducing tariffs or whatever might increase per capita GDP or standards of, but hey, there's more to life than just material things. And, you know, the problem with America today is not that we're suffering from not enough TVs or square footage in our McMansions. The problem is cultural or social or blah, 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 you know, so- what, what you know? Do you, do you have a general response to that kind of a thing? So, in other words, they're kind of conceding, yeah, the nuts and bolts of it, but they're saying, you know, when when Trump, you know, like like a, a corporation that lays off Americans and moves overseas, you know, that's not an issue of just dollars and cents. That that's you know about patriotism. You know that that kind of mentality. What do you say to that?
1: Well, there are a number of possible responses. the The, the first the, the first response that I that I would put forward is well, uh, then stop complaining about the economics of the matter. If you're complaining about Americans' paychecks being stagnant. Then I think you you seed the ground to to those of us who say, well, no. In fact, it has at least get your facts right, right? Okay. And so we can all agree. We can all agree if if you agree with me that in fact we are materially a lot wealthier today. Then okay, then we can talk about at, at what cost are we materially mm-hmm. wealthier. Uh, but but don't start the conversation with, look, you know, the free trade and and de- or deregulation, depending what that that has caused us to be economically stagnant, right? Um, So that that argument that you mentioned, you're right, it it, it gets pulled out very often. It typically gets pulled out after someone like me or you comes along and says, well, in fact, you know, Americans do have a lot higher living standards. Yes, but that's that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about something deeper than material living standards. Um, And, of course, I mean, no sensible person believes that the only thing that matters in life or even the ultimate thing that matters in life is – you know, uh, how much how many, how many, much access you have to consumer electronics and, and, and goods and services. There's a lot more to life than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, to that, I say, well, if, for example, jobs are so important, as which is what people say, you know, having that job is so important. And then let the people who have those jobs, who don't want to lose the jobs, pay for that. What the tariff proponents want is for me to be protected in my job by not having to take a pay cut and for you to pay for it in the form of higher prices. If the job really is so valuable to me because I, I care more, of, I care about just having this job than the material goods that I can buy, I should be willing to take a pay cut to keep my job. If I'm not willing to take a pay cut, then I am disproving the premise. I'm disproving the fact that uh, what Tucker Carlson says about me is true. I'm disproving the fact that what matters, that there's more to life than how much I get paid. It can be true that what matters to me is more than just the paycheck, in which case I should be willing to demonstrate that by willing to take a pay cut and keep my job. But it, it, if that's true, then the case for tariffs is still weak because the case for tariffs is merely a case for shifting the cost to you, to someone else, or to a third party, for me to keep my job.
0: Okay, yeah. It, it, yeah, and that's, that's one of the things that I did too when I'm trying to isolate what's going on is that the reason the... You know the the U.S. firm is outsourcing to India or wherever, is because they're of cheap labor. So yeah, they wouldn't have to if the Americans would be willing to take a pay cut. Yeah. So the yeah. reason you know that, that there's an issue is that U.S. productivity is higher and wage rate rates are higher. If if they weren't the case, then yeah, they would just keep the factory here. So yeah, you know wh- why is it that wage rates are higher here? That kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, and and as, as another, it's not it doesn't quite get to the essence of it. this. Is another another argument, and that is that look, it's not just trade. You know, trade in the U.S. economy measures between 20 and 25 percent of the U.S. economy. Uh, it's not just trade that causes job loss. Any change in the way consumers spend their money, uh, including those that derive from pure demographic changes, any change causes some jobs to be destroyed and other jobs to be to be created. It, it makes no economic sense to focus on those changes that happen to come from transactions across political borders. There's no, there's no economic reason to focus on on, on those jobs. Uh, an example that, that I like to use is, uh, back about 20 years ago, Krispy Kreme announced it was, uh, closing some of its restaurants because of the Atkins diet mm. and probably validly. So, you know, people as a shift to a more high, more high protein, less carbohydrate diet, they want to buy fewer donuts. That's going to throw donut makers and donut sellers. some uh, some of them out of a job. You know, so we do, do we tell Americans, no, 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 You got, you got to keep at least buying the same number of donuts as before in order to, to maintain those, those donut jobs. Uh, we, of course, he wouldn't say that. Now, yeah, you know, this is a change that has nothing to do with international trade; it's everything to do with Americans changing their their, their their diets. But if you lose your job because of American dietary changes, it does that's that's no less of a loss to you than if you lose your job because Americans buy more imports compared to buying uh, more domestically produced goods.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay, I know we're running uh, low on the time here. So, do do you want to just is the last question for you? Is I know you're working on a book on James Buchanan. So maybe, you know, what's the book, what's the project, but also just for people, a lot of my listeners, I think they're fans of the Austrian school. They've heard of James Buchanan, but can you give a commercial? Like, why do they need to to know more about James Buchanan?
1: James Buchanan was one of the most important economists of the 20th century. Um, Spent the, the largest bulk of his career at George Mason. He won the Nobel Prize in 1986. He was not an Austrian economist, as most people classify those things, but he was very sympathetic. For the Austrians, mm-hmm. he's very much a subjectivist. Uh, he was very free market oriented. Buchanan is the single most important founder of the school of public choice, uh, using economic analysis, sound economic analysis, to try to make better sense of collective decisions, political decision making, and, and political outcomes. And uh, one of the things Buchanan was reacting to when he was when he first entered the academy back in the middle part of the twentieth century was you know, at that time. Uh, economists were very adept at identifying market failures uh, oh you know we get pollution positive externalities we need the government to intervene and buchanan basically said and i'm summarizing here of course he said wait, wait h- hold on uh yes these there might be market failures but they have the same uh, imperfect uh I- individuals uh operating in the government as you have operating in the market and so let's look at how they operate in the government let's not just assume they know what to do, and that they're they're going to behave with pure motives. Let's actually look at the motives that confront them and the knowledge that confronts them, and see how collective choices, public choices, compare with privately made choices. And of course, once that's done, the bias in favor of turning matters over to the state is dramatically reduced because people look at the state realistically, just as they're looking at the market realistically. And so, if for no other reason, then Buchanan made a powerful case for looking at government realistically. Uh, that's the reason why your listeners should be interested in, in Buchanan's mm. work.
0: Okay, and, and you're working on uh, – can you talk about yeah, what yes. you're writing?
1: The Fraser Institute has a series. It's called the Essential Scholars Series. Mm. Uh, and these are short books designed to introduce to a non-professional audience, a non-specialized uh, audience, the, base, the the fundamental ideas of of great scholars in the classical liberal libertarian tradition. Mm. So the first in this series was my Essential Hayek. That was published mm-hmm. in, I think, 2014. There's the essential Adam Smith that's out that, that Jim Ottison wrote. Steve uh, Landsberg just published the essential Friedman. There's the essential Nozick coming out. And I'm working now on the essential uh, Buchanan. I hope they have the manuscript uh, to the Fraser Institute by the end of the end of the spring semester. Uh, and again, they're short, they're accessible. They're not written for fellow economists. They're written for people who don't know anything about the subject of the book, but right. the hope is they could read the book and and get the ideas and, and appreciate their importance. Okay.
0: Well, great. We look forward to seeing that. Um, thanks, Don, for your time.
1: My pleasure. It's good talking with you, Bob. I hope twenty is <laughs> a great year for you.
0: <laughs> same same to you. So folks, this is BobMurphyShow.com slash 99. If you want to see, I'll have some links to some of Don's. Uh, Posts and other information. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll see everybody next time.
1: You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.